You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastel-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes you may have missed, like last week's episode with Jem, where we discussed some pretty big news from the volatility space, as well as whether investors should go for volatility or trend-following strategies, if they want to protect their portfolios. Also, I would like to encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Jim and I were once again joined by natural resource expert Adam Rosenzweig for a really important conversation about the current energy crisis and where we focused more on the demand side of the crisis this time. And we uh, and also actually Adam shared the news of the new oil put that the US government has implemented, so to speak. Anyways, Alan... It's great to have you on the podcast this week. How are you doing? How are things in Dublin? Are you ready for Halloween? Oh, I am indeed, yeah. I'm, I'm very well, thanks. Um, lots of kids running around in the locality here dressed up. Um, so um, not dressed up myself now, I hasten to add, but uh, looking forward to the weekend, a long weekend here. Have you seen on Twitter, there's a lot of adverts for Halloween costumes and they're all like members of the FOMC committee. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I hadn't seen it. Uh, um, who, who would you be dressing up as, as a cheap howler? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Hopefully none of them, but there we are. Anyway, it's good to hear um, that you're doing well. And um, we have, as usual, some, um, what we at least think, some good topics lined up. And, uh, and then we'll see where we go with that. As usual, I'm going to try and run through uh, a little summary. Of course, it's the second last trading day of October we are recording on, on Friday. And it is a little bit hard to pick uh, from all of the events that has taken place during this month. Another month for the history books in some cases, like the short tenure of the UK Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and the earnings of Meta slash Facebook, that just seems to have fallen off a cliff and where the stock is now down about 75% from its high. They're in, co in good company, of course, as Amazon predicted, the slowest ever sales growth. That stock, stock has fallen as much as 21% in after hours trading yesterday, and it slid about 14% today in pre-market trading. And if the pre-market losses hold, that's about $143 billion in value that would have been wiped off uh, the company and the stock would register the biggest drop since April of this year. Of course, last night's news that Elon Musk finally becoming the owner of Twitter may turn out to be pretty significant news. We also have US mortgage rates topping 7% this month. That's the first time in 20 years. And uh, while all of that is going on, Fed officials are maintaining their resolute hawkish stance ahead of next week's meeting, laying the groundwork for interest rates reaching 5% by March 2023. Um, and that seems to, um, you know, at least according to economists surveyed by Bloomberg, lead the US and the globe into some kind of recession. Now, economists expect the FOMC to announce 75 basis points uh, on Wednesday to be followed by half a point in December and a quarter point in the following two meetings. But perhaps the biggest news that most people don't talk about 
is the US export ban of microchips to China, which I think actually is worth watching. We've also had some energetic bear market rallies during October, like the one we had early on in the month, which didn't turn out to be that much. But we're trying again this week, um, so we'll see how that goes. Of course, right now, they're still bear market rallies. What about you, Alan? Um, anything you have been looking at, noticing uh, during this month of October? Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on, uh, different dimensions, um, so a lot to, to, to touch on. I think um, it's interesting, as you say, you know, we've had this uh, kind of choppy recovery rally um, in, in risk assets since since the middle of the month. And, you know, it's interesting, we had the um, the CPI in the, in the middle of the month, and that was uh, the, the bottom for the market. Um, so we had one of those kind of positive reactions to, to seemingly bad news. Um, so that used to be a great trading signal in the past, you know, when, when the market didn't go down on, on what was negative news. And, um, but, but, you know, I kind of dismissed that a little bit this time around because we've had a number of these episodes in the last uh, year or so where the market did one thing one day and then reversed the next day. But, but so far, that is looking like a pretty good signal that maybe the market had factored in a lot of the, the, the negative news at around inflation. Uh, and obviously, we're in the midst of a, a corrective rally so far at the moment. I think, as you say, it's really interesting that, you know, the, the, the shift that we're seeing on, on the technology side and, you know, the really pessimistic um, news out, I think it's a year to the date since Facebook changed to be, to become meta. And, you know, so uh, that hasn't gone well for them, you'd have to say. Um, but equally, I was reading, um, you know, during the week about uh, there's a number of companies scaling back on driverless cars and investing in some of these technologies. So it really strikes me that a lot of the optimism that had propelled these stocks to to such lofty heights, you know, going back a year, um, that, that 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 sentiment is really changing now, and obviously, um, you know, much less liquidity in the market is clearly a factor uh, along with that as well. I think the other thing that's interesting is, you know, just uh, looking at the bond side. Um, obviously, we we seem to have a, a little bit of um, uh, you know of an exaggerated move at the really long end. Uh, I think it's something that we might get onto later in terms of liquidity. But but there is a growing sense that maybe of of of, of less liquidity in in the treasury market, and we certainly saw um, you know more extreme moves at, in the thirty year and a little bit of steepening between tens thirties in, in the last while, which I think is interesting. So I'm not sure if that's just liquidity driven. Are, are are reflecting uh, more of uh, of of a premium being into, into long end as well, but but that, but that's something I'm, I'm certainly starting to monitor a little bit more closely. Yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit about that um, later. Now, this is definitely a plug for my own Twitter account, but I really will encourage people to go and find my Twitter account, and then I I read I don't do much on Twitter, but I did retweet something today that I really hope people will go and watch. It's a small, short video about how Jim Cramer has talked about Facebook and Zuckerberg throughout the last few years, including his comments. And I must think that the last ones came yesterday after the earnings uh, was announced the day before. Uh, it is hilarious, I have to say. So I really hope people will go and uh, and pick that up and, uh, and watch it um, for the 60 seconds or 90 seconds that it that it lasts. Um, but uh, yeah, no, definitely some things we'll talk about, some of the stuff that you just um, mentioned. Um, I mean, for me, uh, sitting here with about, um, you know, one and a half day left uh, of the month in terms of trading days, 
Um, it looks like it's a bit of a coin toss, really, as to whether we're going to finish as an industry in the red or in the black for the month, uh, meaning so far it's pretty pretty close to flat, uh, I imagine, at the end of this week, unless something unexpected happens in the last few hours of trading. Um, and actually, it's kind of a story um, of two tales. This month, we had the first three weeks of October pretty much going according to plan with the same kind of trend-following themes that we have been seeing the last few months and which have taken long bonds down significantly, uh, as well as many of the currencies against the US dollar. And that's been primarily the driver of returns. And then last Friday, um, the Wall Street Journal, who are the preferred way for the Fed to leak information about their plans, uh, brought an article that suggested that the Fed uh, is now thinking about thinking about pausing their rate hikes, or at least slow them down. And I think that's actually what's ignited this recent rally put uh, a, you know a, a fire under some of these assets like bonds there are five big points from the low um but they're still down 23 big points since july uh you had currencies against the dollar rallying uh equities they're up now about 10 percent from their lows in october so definitely some pretty big moves and actually i think Equity markets uh, are now more volatile than trend-following returns on a monthly basis, it seems. Uh, they've had a few 6-7% up and down moves this year, um, which is usually only reserved for trend-following, I would say. Uh, energies um, have also been pretty interesting in October. Uh, Nat gas is down about 15% for the month. Uh, and the Dutch, so that's the US Nat gas, the Dutch Nat gas, Nat gas, that's a tongue twister, Dutch Nat gas down 66% since the peak in late August. I mean, wow. And these are really meaningful reversals, uh, I would say. Um, so overall, I'm pretty impressed with what I'm seeing CTAs are looking like uh, so far in, in October, which is as I'll come to in, in, in just a, a few minutes. Um, and uh, But overall, I mean, I do think that trend followers have lost some money in fixed income this month, maybe metals, possibly equities and currencies. And then we may have made some money in energies, in grains, and in softs uh, so far. My own trend barometer, interestingly enough, uh, has been on the lower side for the last couple of weeks. It's finishing uh, yesterday at 39. So it is suggesting maybe a tiny bit of a negative uh, return. And if we look at what uh, the numbers are uh, so far at the uh, close of business on Wednesday, because I don't have... Thursday, but Thursday probably was a down day for sure for trend followers uh, and CTAs. But the B-top 50 is pretty flat for the month now, up 19.6 for the year. Sockgen CTA index down 26 basis points, up 25 and three quarters for the year. The trend index down 75 basis points, up about 34.5%. And the Sockgen short-term traders index down 32 basis points, up 12.6% for the year. And contrasting that this month, the uh, MSCI world up 6% so far, up, uh, oh, sorry, down almost 22% for the year. And the to uh, S&P total return index, pretty much the same, up 6.8%, down 196 for the year. And the world government bond index, they're up 10 basis points this month. That is the first time in a very long time. So um, good for them. Anyways, so we're going to talk a little bit to begin with, kick off kind of your perspective, I think, 
for uh, October, um, so I don't know what 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 you've noticed uh, about the month of October and and how broad you you want to go. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting um, that, as you say, it's performance hasn't been too bad, really. I, I mean, it's it has been a reversal month, you know, or at least um, kind of a choppy recovery in in, in equities um, in some of the bond markets. Probably net the net change is still in the direction of the major trend o- over the course of the month. Um, certainly, as I say, kind of the long end of the US, but um, um, certainly in some markets, you, you will have seen pretty notable reversals. Like the, the UK would be the obvious example. You know, the last time I was on, we were in the midst of the sterling uh, and guilt crisis. And obviously, we've had a, you know, a change of leadership in the UK since then and, and a pretty um, pretty notable rebounding cable from, you know, 103 back up to you know, touching 116 now and, and, and sterling uh, yields, you know, touched at, I think, close to 5% uh, before coming down to so 4%. So, you know, I can easily see where, where, you know, individual managers, if you had more or less exposure in those markets, you, you could certainly uh, be, be you know, um, outperforming or underperforming. And equally, as you say, you know, we, we, we've had a pretty mild uh, October here in in Europe, you know, and um, obviously that that's a big influence on on the on the net gas prices. Uh, and I think one of the few one of the contracts traded negative for for a few hours yesterday. Um, so again, choppy reversals there. The last time I was on, I was saying a cheap cheap trend had done very well this year, and you know I often look at a stock chain trend indicator uh, as as an uh, in indication of that. And so it is a good year for 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 cheap trend, but it's a tough month. So the top uh, stock chain trend indicator down over six percent this month. So that highlights. And what's the year to date on that, Alan? Because I don't. I don't. It. Uh, I'd have to pull it up. It, okay. It's up. It's about. I think from memory, 48, 50%, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's actually but, a horrible return for that. I mean, the indicator has a really horrible rack, uh, track record. It might be an interesting indicator to look at, but I it, yeah, well, it, never it's follow very, it. It's an interesting one because if you look back at it, I looked at it before, it tracks the performance of the Sockgen Trend Index very closely up until the point when it was launched as 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 a replicator, exactly, so, which is what you expect for, for 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 something that you try and fit to the data, and obviously subsequently underperformed substantially. But but it is just one trading signal, the twenty one twenty day moving average cross. So of course you'd expect it to underperform a diversified set of trading signals. But you know it is it is one of a few um, kind of quick and easy ways of of capturing kind of a a, a kind of a cheap trend uh, indicator. So as I say, yeah, very much um, a, a reversal month. But from from a performance perspective, you know if you look at U.S. mutual funds where you can get the daily data, um, generally negative across the board. But but you know, managers then between kind of uh, one to one to three percent generally. So, so, so not not too bad in the context of a very strong year. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I don't know. Maybe we should have done a little bit of historical analysis whether October is usually a good month or a bad month for trend following. Uh, could be fun, maybe to uh, to track those things. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the year continues to uh, produce surprises and opportunities and. Uh, I think generally speaking, as we talked about um, so far, people have navigated this environment uh, extremely well. Okay, all right. So speaking of trend following, not that we're going to talk trend following all of all today. So people who um, are less interested in trend, uh, if there are one or two of you out there, then um, you know, rest assured there'll be some other stuff we're going to talk about today. 
Um, but you brought a, a topic along, um, which is somewhat topical, you could say, because a lot of people are asking right now and looking at this space and saying, well, okay, if I do want to go into it, what's the right allocation? Um, and um, so you've, um, you've thought about this question. I was actually doing some work recently with an investment team, uh, part of a uh, wealth management uh, firm, who are literally going through that process of reviewing their allocation to trend following and thinking about what's the right size uh, of the allocation in in a portfolio, and um, and I guess as you say, you, you know, a lot of investors will be going through that thought process now on the back of what's been a very strong period of performance and thinking about okay, um, should we have more of this or do we have enough, etc. Um, and it's interesting, um, you know, anybody who's worked in the uh, managed futures industry you know, would have seen plenty of slide decks of materials that show the benefit of adding managed futures and trend following to a multi-asset portfolio or to an equity portfolio or to a 60-40 portfolio. And for a long time, you could show that adding trend following or managed futures to, say, an equity portfolio increased the, the return and um, uh, reduced the, uh, the the volatility, re- reduced the, the, the max drawdown, um, you know, improved the uh, skew, etc., uh, and, and improved it across all of the metrics. Um, and then uh, there was a period uh, really in the last decade, towards the end of the, the of the last decade, because of the very strong performance of equities over that period, um, that if you did the analysis again, it didn't quite uh, uh, show all of those benefits. Yes, it would uh, certainly improve the sharp ratio and, and reduce the drawdown, but uh, in absolute terms, the return might, might have been reduced, which was a bit of a concern to some people because there's this perceived opportunity cost of allocating to, to trend following managed futures. Anyway, if you br- bring forward to to the current situation now, largely on the back of obviously the very strong performance we're seeing this year and obviously a tough performance of traditional assets, if you now redo the analysis going back to say 2000, uh, adding a trend following to a either a an equity portfolio or a multi-asset portfolio does uh, increase the return, re- reduce the vol, uh, improve the, uh, the the the, um, the sharp ratio, uh, and 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 uh, lowers the max drawdown, etc. Um, so so that was the initial kind of observation, but it did get me thinking, you know, about um, how you know how that analysis does does vary over time, and if you were to think about trying to optimize what's the right allocation to trend following, that that's also something that that varies over time. And if you go back and run the numbers now. Uh, like a, a very simple analysis of, of say, a three-asset uh, portfolio or a three-strategy portfolio, equities, bonds, and uh, trend following. And if you run that back to 2000 and, and optimize to to maximize the, the sharp ratio, actually, the, the, the allocation of trend following comes out at about 48%, um, which is obviously way above what, you know, the, the typical allocations that you see. But interestingly, if you went back and, and did that uh, analysis back in 2019, um, it was still pretty hefty. It was uh, for the for the two decades of 2019. It was the the, the uh, sharp maximizing uh, allocation to trend would be 37. percent But also of interest, if you just ran that analysis for for the decade of 2010 to 2019, um, actually you wouldn't have allocated to trend following because. Uh, 
um, the, the the allocation to the diversifying benefits wasn't enough to to outweigh the uh, the, the better return uh, risk return profile of, of bonds and equities over that period. So it does very much highlight that um, you know uh, the, 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 that question of of trying to optimize the allocation to trend following um, is very much. Uh, a backward-looking measure, and it's going to be very sensitive to um, to what time frame that you choose. Because if you were to redo the analysis, say based on uh, the performance since uh, 2020, you'd have a, a, an enormous allocation to, to trend following. So um, it got me thinking. Well, you know, what, what were what are more sophisticated ways of doing this? Or, or and 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 in the industry, we would never. Kind of position it, it from the perspective of optimization anyway. The whole point about um, trend following is that it's a strategy that's very adaptive and that by allocating it to it within your multi-asset portfolio, you're increasing the robustness of your portfolio because you have something that's fundamentally different that will operate in a very different uh, environment uh, to, to, to other assets. So that got me, um, brought me to a, a paper that I came across recently from uh, two analysts at GIC, and GIC is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of, of Singapore. Um, and they've written this paper in conjunction with um, uh, MSCI. So actually MSCI have um, have developed a, a, mo- a macro model or, or a model for quantifying macro risks. And, 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 the, and the title of the paper is uh, Building Balanced Portfolios for the Long Run, a new framework for incorporating macro resilience in, in asset allocation. And it's quite an interesting paper. Um, they, they highlight two shifts that we're seeing in the world right now. One is the rise of private assets. Uh, and the second is that we're into a very changed macro environment, obviously much more macro uncertainty. Um, and what they do is that they use that for uh, a justification for thinking, saying, well, if you were going to try and construct portfolios based not on backward-looking measures uh, such as, you know, sharp optimization, etc., but instead you were taking a more fundamentally driven forward-looking asset allocation approach. What you'd want to do is to try and construct an asset based on how assets might respond to different types of macro environments and different uh, macro risks. So that's that's the um, that's the approach that they've taken in this paper. Um, they talk about kind of five key longer-term risks that, that could play out. And um, they highlight that if you look back at the markets and the economy over the last kind of two to three decades, we tended to, it, was, it tended to be demand shocks that dominated markets. And one of the offshoots of demand shocks is that when you get a demand shock, it obviously means that the outlook for growth tends to be, to, to be weaker. And it means that Policymakers are likely to respond with lower rates, so it tends to support this kind of negative correlation between bonds and equities. So, in, a, in, in an adverse demand shock, equities go down and bonds go up, and, and vice versa. Obviously, what we've been living through in the recent past is much more. We experienced much more supply shocks. We had that with COVID. We've had it with the uh, war in Ukraine. So, going forward, if supply shocks were to be much more prevalent on the landscape, which I think is reasonable, um, how would that impact different markets? And they also look at um, policy shocks, trend growth shocks, real rate shocks, um, and then what to do is they use the MSE My Eye model. Um, to model how different asset classes would perform in these different types of shocks. Um, and um, 
I mean, obviously, you could debate that. There's, there's not, there is kind of a high-level description of the model, but, but they don't go into the ins and outs of, of, of the various sensitivities. Um, the upshot of it all is, is actually that they also suggest moving away from, from the traditional 60-40 portfolio to, to build macro resilience. They do, interestingly, have allocations to private equity, uh, much more to tips uh, to private real estate as well. Um, um, but interestingly, no allocation trend following or managed futures. So um, I thought it was an interesting approach, a lot of merit to the approach, but curious that, 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 that actually these types of strategies didn't feature when, you know, from our perspective in the industry, we would see one of the core um, benefits of adding trend following or managed features is in, in, a, in, in boosting the robustness of a portfolio and having the adaptability to be able to respond uh, to different uh, shocks. So, so interesting uh, perspective. Yeah, I mean, quite a lot to, uh, to, to comment on, really. Um, first of all, I just want to say I don't think we've ever had a demand shock for trend following. Unfortunately, um, there never seems to be any real strong demand <laughs> and and plenty of supply actually. Um, but that being said, um, you know, I, again going back to your initial part of 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 this uh, about the how to build a an optimal portfolio uh, between stocks, bonds, and 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 manage futures trend following. Um, a couple of things springs to mind. One is it. It reminds me of a conversation I did many years ago in the um, uh, in the Top Traders Roundtable series, actually, um, where I was uh, where I was uh, sitting with three of the biggest consultants in the world discussing this. And of course, we know how important consultants are uh, as the gatekeeper for these pension funds to uh, allocate to uh, various assets, including trend following. And they all said. Um, and it's on record, that their models, of course, completely confirm what you said, that the allocation to trend following should be so much higher than any pension fund uh, would, would, would even consider. But of course, they could never show that really to, the, to their clients because they would be somewhat laughed out of the room um, and probably not get the mandate. Um, so it is true that, and this is why it's so frustrating because all the evidence, I mean, I often say there's never been a white paper written uh, that does not confirm the benefits of of adding trend following to a portfolio. And it has been quite a few decades by now since we had the first from John Lindner in 1983 uh, talking about the benefits of adding managed futures to a stocks and bond portfolio. So that's one thing. Now, I also get this question asked that you just uh, pointed to and of course you're absolutely right you there's you can have different starting points and you get different results etc cetera, etc cetera. so we approach it from a slightly different point of view because whenever you decide to make a change to your portfolio and say for someone who's maybe so far only have had stocks and bonds including trend following is a big shift because you have to reduce some of your stocks and you have to reduce some of your bonds uh, most likely and you have to include trend following. And the question is, of course, how much? So we said to ourselves, why not try and do this by finding two extreme starting points? And actually, what we decided was to find four. <laughs> so we said, okay, what if you did it right before the tech bubble burst? Or what if you did it right after? So the low, which I think was in 
March 02 or something like that, or October 02, October 02? Or what if you did it right before the great financial crisis uh, in starting in 07, I think it was? And uh, or if you did it at the end of it in March of 09. And th- that I think actually is not a bad way of doing it because one, and then I was going to ask you about this, you know, what's the minimum number of years you need to do any kind of meaningful analysis on portfolio construction? Well, you know, you can't just say, let's start in 2019, that's completely meaningless. Maybe even 10 years is meaningless because you can have one regime in 10 years and it doesn't really so. Actually, my starting points are not too dis- di- different from yours when you said 2000. I'm saying, okay, let's do it at the beginning of the crisis, tech bubble, and then <clears throat> again starting in in, um, in 07. So it gives us at least 15 years uh, in both. And what's super interesting about it is that, um, first of all, and these are from memories because I don't have the number in front of me, but um, in the, in, in the uh, tech bubble, if you started before or after, the consistency, so the and of course we're using our own performance track record as this managed futures part, not not the Sutton index. We're using our own program, but the um, the 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 allocation to to us essentially, uh, so trend following, um, is the most consistent one. Meaning, it doesn't change a lot whether you did it before the crisis or after the crisis. The big difference is between your stock and bond allocation. So again, to me, that goes to suggest that it really needs to be a, a core allocation in your portfolio. If you go and you do it now, and we're talking in in the fourth quarter of, of 2022, and you do it for the great financial crisis, it is interesting, and, and you kind of also alluded to an example of that. In fact, there's only two assets it would select now, and that's going to be equities and trend following. It's not even going to include bonds, neither before or after the great financial crisis. They're completely out because they haven't really made any return um, since the crisis. Um, now, if you did it two years ago, there would have been a bond allocation. But still, and I, because I've done this every month for a long time now, so I, I kind of know the, uh, the, 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 the how it's changed. And again, what I will say is that the most consistent part of that portfolio is still the trend-following part. It's, again, the equities and the bonds that are shifting much more. So however you slice and dice this, I think that one, trend-following, and I've obviously said this for (laughs) a a few decades by now, but I think it is essential for every portfolio to have it. And I don't think people need to worry so much about, oh, is it 17% or is it 27%? You know, frankly, rule of thumb, 20-25% is probably good enough. And then you can do whatever you want with your equities and your bonds. Clearly, I think common sense would have dictated that bonds shouldn't be a very large part of your portfolio when it was yielding pretty much nothing or even negative in Europe. Uh, I think that that's common sense. Um, but even if you'd stayed with it, uh, you would have slowly rebalanced and gotten out of your bonds and, and so on and so forth. So, I guess my point is, it does not have to be so complicated, frankly. No, I, I mean, I think there are other things you can do. Even in, within the, obviously, there's lots of different models, like uh, Black Letterman, all of that, that type of stuff you can do to get a bit more 
forward-looking, but 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 a basic forward-looking um, perspective would be, as you say, you know, obviously when bond yields were at zero or, or fifty basis points, your expected return over the over the long term from holding those assets was was fifty basis points. So, I mean, it, there is a slightly more attractive outlook now on 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 bonds, obviously, with yields here. But against that, obviously, the the bond equity correlation has gone from being. I looked at it; it was kind of negative point two, I think, between two thousand to the start of this year, and now it's plus point two this year. So. So that's diminishing that, that that benefit. But equally, then on the managed futures side um, and the trend following side, um, you know, uh, those returns, obviously, within managed futures, you've got a cash element as well. And the, the, the returns over the last two decades have been developed or, or been produced with a cash rates of about one and a half percent on average. Now we're up to you know four four and a half percent at the short end of the U.S. curve, or we will be uh, pretty soon. Um, so you know you 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 could you could for you could construct you know forward looking estimates of returns based on on a, an expected chart plus um, uh, plus cash and and building in the the revised yields that you're getting in treasuries and and equities. You know. You're making a great point here, Alan, because I think this is something that people will sometimes think about and say, well, hang on, maybe we now need to reduce some of our other allocations and move into bonds and get that 4%, right? But the beauty of trend following is you're going to get that automatically because 90 or 85 or 80% of the money we get into our uh, strategies, we don't need for margin purposes. So they're just sitting you know, hopefully in a safe place, earning a decent yield. Um, so that's the beauty. You're not losing out. You're not missing out. Uh, even if you, uh, even if you were to uh, allocate to trend following over fixed income. Um, so, uh, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> as I said in the beginning, um, n- no one has ever written a um, a research paper to suggest the opposite. Um, but I am surprised to some extent that the article you mentioned doesn't even include this, especially if it includes things like private equity. I mean, I think we've been around longer than private equity, frankly. So, um, so I think, yeah, that's... I mean, it, it did get me thinking, I, I don't know enough about how, um, GIC run their portfolio. I mean, they've got 800, you know, if you've got 800 billion, um, and you want to allocate, I could have something to do with MSCI since they are kind of the uh, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the 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 sponsor of this paper. Maybe uh, you maybe, never know. Maybe there's an element of that to it. But I will link to the paper. By the way, I just say to everyone, I will link to this paper in the show notes, so you can definitely go and. Read I mean, it I yourself. think it's definitely. I I thought there was a lot of um, good stuff in there. I mean, particularly from the perspective of that um, idea of taking a forward-looking approach as opposed to backwards uh, and and managing to to pass volatility i thought there was maybe a little bit of um you know a lack of imagination um you know some we've we've talked about before about the potential risks that we could see i mean they, they had the five major risks which are fairly broad but you could you could imagine other factors you know not just um um, obviously, they, they talk about kind of a, a, a weaker growth environment on an ongoing basis. But from the perspective of equities, you know, that the split between capital and labor and the returns to labor could could rise. That that's not something I, th- I think got, got got captured within there. Um, and and the other thing is, the, the, notwithstanding the fact that they said don't be 
backward looking. They did do a back test then over the last 50 years to see how the portfolio would do, um, which made me think, well, why, why, why just think about the risks we've seen over the last 50 years? And, you know, how would that portfolio do in, in a very deflationary environment, uh, which was something that, that um, I'm not sure, you know, uh, was, was fully, um, fully kind of um, factored in, you know, so I think, you know, it's it's interesting when you kind of develop something like a macro model of uh, and quantify macro risk. The very fact that you do that might might lull you into thinking that you've captured all of the relevant risks and and you can solve for it. Whereas, you know, maybe a more simplistic approach of saying, um, well, let's find a strategy that can help the portfolio regardless of the different type of shock. Um, something like trend following. You know, Alan. Um in a few minutes, we're going to talk about um, one of the upcoming interviews that you had, and in that in in that conversation, it's a person who has essentially been working with central banks, and basically what he's saying is that we should be aware, or at least in his opinion, and he warned them about it. They're using the wrong models, right? Which is scary that even at a central bank, they're looking at the wrong models. So my point is. I find it interesting that a lot of these firms are coming out with these quote-unquote forward-looking models because if you just go back in history and you see how much has happened that none of these models seem to have been able to forecast anyways. I mean, how many times have a central bank uh, forecasted a recession or uh, whatever? Probably zero. So um, I don't personally give much about, you know, for these uh, quote-unquote models because I think the future is unpredictable. Um, and I think the last 12, 24 months have shown us and given us all the proof we need to know about that. So so sometimes I think it can be over overly complicated. And I think a common sense approach um, with a decent allocation to um, to various areas is is fine, uh, frankly. Anyways, you brought another, another article that I also will link to in the show notes. But uh, as I haven't read... Um, uh, any of the two, frankly, um, been a little bit busy uh, <laughs> coming into month end. Um, yeah. So um, tell t- tell me about that one. This is is very much in the same vein, or very much linked to this idea of thinking about forward looking risks. And it's um, I just came across a piece from the McKinsey uh, Global Institute, who have published a report recently called "On the Cusp of a New Era." Um, and it's very much um, in the vein of, I guess, what a lot of people are saying at the moment that we're, you know, we've had a period probably, you know, from the, the, they dated from 1989 to 2019, which was a very distinct period in economic and market history. Um, and there are signs that we're transitioning out of that era into a different era. And, you know, they, they, they have kind of the idea that you have earthquakes at different points in time, such as at, you know, World War Two, that then led led the, uh, put the foundations in place for a particular era. So the post-war boom they label from 1944 to 71. And then obviously you had the breakdown in the monetary system at that time. And then a new era, the, an era of contention, they call it, between 71 and 89. Obviously then you had the breakdown uh, or the fall of the Berlin Wall, etc. And the move into the era of markets, uh, 89 to 2019. And the suggestion that we're on in the midst of a new 
you know, a move into a new era on the back of a number of earthquakes. The earthquakes being obviously COVID, um, uh, you know, the the the, the war in, in Ukraine, the, ge- the rising geopolitical risk, uh, the, the concerns about energy scarcity, etc. Um, and and certainly, you know, um, th- there is, as I say, that sense that. Uh, you know that we the the, the the neoliberalism is has has run its course. That there's concerns around that in terms of inequality, that uh, free markets, um, um, you know, can't can't run um, uh, unfettered. And, uh, and and obviously, I, I guess as well, we had this disinflationary trend in that period that now seems to be over. Um, so it is very much in line with uh, similar work, I would say, in this space. You know, obviously there's the work, um, the fourth turning kind of Neil Howe's work, which I know you've talked about before. But equally, you know, Ray Dalio has written pieces on this before, on the idea that you, you have these, his one was about different paradigms in markets, that paradigms that often run for a decade or a couple of decades. And, and often what you get is that there's a, a kind of a, a predominant ideology or belief uh, that, 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 that permeates everything and you get that, that, that works up to a point, but then you see there's perceived uh, success and stability, but that in itself is laying the foundations for, for, for the kind of destruction and the breakout. So if you think about, you know, if you go back to 20, um, 2019, you know, you had a period there where, um, you know, unemployment around the world was was low. Um, you had low inflation, uh, asset markets at multi-year highs. Um, so, you know, uh, seemingly things looked pretty good on the surface, but at the same time, you had record high uh, central bank balance sheets. You had record high debt levels. You had rising geopolitical concerns, uh, and you had um, you know this con- this concern about global warming, etc. So, so in a sense that those that 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 the fault lines are now breaking, uh, and and we we're in the midst of this earthquake that's setting the stage uh, for 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 the new era. Yeah, I mean, I know we're going to pluck a little bit or tease um, next week's uh, episode that's coming out. Um, But I actually want to also tease uh, another one that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, And and because I just recorded it uh, a couple of days ago. And and, and actually what it is, I guess what it's about uh, in, in a sense is... Um, you know, I believe, I, I personally believe that that there are cycles. Uh, I think there are business cycles. I think there are all all kinds of cycles. And of course, uh, Howard Marks has written a whole book about cycles. Um, so I do think they exist. I'm not clever enough myself to forecast them or use them for anything as such, other than I am trying to uh, make myself aware of some of them and the more important ones Um because um, they they very often um, kind of match up with with these big turning points, um, and so um, so I th- I I think it's definitely worth uh, paying attention to. And some people will call it regime change. That's fine, um, but but you might just define it as different types of cycles. And one of them, the one we I guess we talk mostly about, is this forty year interest rate cycle, which. You know, frankly, if you look at it, uh, interest rates peaked in in um, 1981, and at 40 years, you get 2021, and you know, lo and behold, that's pretty much where we had the low in interest rates. So they might still work these cycles. So I think one can't ignore them, um, which 
it makes me very optimistic about this whole divergent systematic trading strategy uh, that we spend so much time um, talking about. Um, because I think in, in, in the cycle that we are in now, where markets will become much more volatile, and like you said a few couple of months ago after Jackson Hole, where Schnabel from the ECB had come out and said, we're going from the great moderation to the great volatility. I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's coming from a central banker. And, and so I think it's right. And as I said earlier today, if you look at just the volatility on a monthly basis in equity returns, I mean, they've almost taken over the kind of volatility we deliver in trend following um, because we don't normally deliver kind of plus five, six, seven percent. Uh, but equities are at the moment, um, let alone some of the other markets that we uh, we talk about. So, yeah, I mean, um, I think I think what's interesting about this as well is, as you say, we we picked up on a lot of these themes as well at Jackson Hole. Obviously, that and and you know, so the McKinsey are not the only one writing about this. I think the, the, the way they present it is quite interesting, and they talk about it along five different dimensions in terms of like the shifting world order how technology has evolved in those different eras and how it might evolve in the future um demographic forces resources and energy utilization and capitalization and the financial side so it's it there's nothing um i would say yeah they have a lot of interesting stats in there they have lots of interesting perspectives but lots of people certainly as you say jackson hole there was uh, the not just schnabel but the um the general manager from the BIS spoke as well about how the global economy will be supply constrained going forward. And um, but interestingly, you know, I was thinking about: Do you see evidence of that in the markets? Do we see evidence of that being priced into the markets yet? And I'm not sure that we do. You know, and and in, in a lot of the commentary that you still read, there's still this kind of view: you know, oh, the CPI is going to come down next year, just on base effects and disinflation and commodity prices um and there is a comment in in the in the mckinsey uh you know um report about how demand shocks are very often linked to psychology you know shifts in behavior but supply shocks are, are physical and will play out much more slowly over time so the, these are shocks that are evolving at the moment you know the trend towards near shoring and rejigging re supply chains but it's the fact you know it's almost the fact that you don't see a, a you know a monthly report on this in the same way as you do in the jobs data that that means it's hard to quantify it's hard to keep it at the fore of investors uh, investors minds so I do think they're um, significant, but 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 I'm not sure if they're fully factored. In, well, I, certainly not fully factored into markets. I'm not sure they're, they're factored into any great degree. I think actually, and 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 I've been talking about you know uh, risk of inflation for probably a couple of years now, way before a lot of people were even thinking about inflation coming back, and most likely poo-pooing the idea that it would come back. But I think this type of inflation or this new regime that we're in, um, you know, not least kind of linked to inflation or the resurgence of inflation. But I do think what makes it different is I think it's this unpredictable inflation we're having, meaning, no, you can't write a report every month saying, yeah, this is where we are. We're, you know, we're heading this way because I think we're going to be heading all sorts of ways, oh, both up and down. And that's going to drive markets um you know, in, in unpredictable ways as well. I mean, uh, you and I remember back in, in March of this year, uh, after what happened in Ukraine, people were pretty much saying, oh, this commodity super cycle is here. It's, 
it's going to just go up from here. You know, after a few weeks, it really turned. And as I mentioned earlier, we've seen things like .NET Gas um, to, you know, fall 66% from its high. Um, this is pretty meaningful. So it won't be easy. Um, and this is also why I think being fundamental, uh, dri fundamentally driven in your investments right now is going to be incredibly hard, if not impossible. Uh, not that I think it is great in the first place, but I do think these rules-based strategies will have the upper hand. Um, at least that's how I feel about it. But you mentioned the BIS. So let's jump into the next uh, point that we want because we want to tease... The, the podcast episode coming out next week a little bit um, because it is with a very special guest, uh, someone who's worked at the OECD, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, uh, and the BIS, um, and it is uh, William White or Bill White, as as we talked uh, to him, um, calling him. And um, yeah, just a few takeaways, Alan. What, uh, yeah, oh, well, I, without, I like, without I, stealing his thunder, because I, yeah, yeah, let's not do a summary. Yeah. Um, but but just in case people don't know uh, Bill White, and uh, I, you know, I, to be honest, uh, I, I when we after we recorded, I, I felt a bit bad that maybe we didn't uh, give uh, everybody a sense of. Uh, the, the, the weight that Bill White holds in, in kind of global economic circles. And it, it only came up in the conversation that we were having with him afterwards um, around, because uh, we, you know, we, we talked about central banks and central bankers and do they have the same credibility? And and, and then, well, you know, obviously Ben Bernanke, Bernanke getting the Nobel Prize recently. And he he, he uh, was was too uh, humble to, to kind of uh, mention it during the podcast. But uh, Adam Tooze, who, who writes a a blog or a chart book that that's a great resource uh, uh that, that he wrote a piece you know talking about you know the, the, how that it had been quite controversial um uh, so basically like the, the point on on that was uh, taking a bit of a tangent is that uh, i think bernanke got the uh, nobel prize for kind of proving in in model terms that you can get these banking crises it, it was very much that kind of for for kind of um you know developing the technical uh, underpinnings that, that can prove uh, from a theoretical perspective that something that we know has actually happened can happen. So it was kind of like, why would you give somebody a Nobel Prize for something so theoretical uh, when there are people around the world, such as Bill White, who have you know, been poo-pooing uh, the over-reliance on models and have been much more prescient in their predictions. So back in 2007, he he was, you know, he, he used to oversee the publication of the BIC, BIS annual report. And in, in 2007, they basically warned about the leverage in the system and, and the risk of a financial crisis. So Adam Patuz actually said, you know, if anybody should have got the, the Nobel Prize, it should have been Bill White. Um, so we probably should have started off with that in retrospect in, 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 in the podcast. But yeah, really fascinating. Um, you know, we touch on so much uh, um, really interesting information. But I, I suppose the overall philosophy that Bill White has, and this is a guy who's been an economist uh, at the very high, highest level, you know, Bank of England, Bank of Canada, BIS, OECD, um, is that the the, the markets and, and the economy, it's a, it's a complex adaptive system, you know, so... I seem to have not, heard that word before on this podcast, complex yeah, yeah, adaptive exactly. system. Well, this is, this is the point that he obviously is not 
a proponent of trend following, ah, but we, okay. we, we, brought, we made that link uh, fairly quickly about how trend following could be a solution uh, to, to, to a system that, that uh, has those features. But, but that's just it, that it's, um, the, the, the system is inherently unstable um, and uh, it's the hubris of central bankers from time to time who think that they have solved it and think they maybe understand it. Um, and obviously we've seen that uh, in the last 12 months. You know, we went from, you know, the Fed with their uh, flexible average inflation targeting to coming out and saying, well, actually, we don't actually understand inflation very well. So um, I think it's, yeah, couldn't couldn't recommend listening to Bill strongly enough. We, we could have gone on for, for, for much longer. But it's, it's, it, it's, it's actually pretty sobering stuff as well. Uh, that we, no, no um, you know, mad forecasts, I would say, but certainly an overall framework uh, that he presents that um, that would, would have you pretty worried that we're going to see some volatile times ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's one of the best conversations we've had on, on, on these type of topics, um, for sure. So it is a must listen to uh, w without a doubt. Um, and uh, of course, I'm sure Rich uh, Down Under will be uh, uh, cheering for joy when he hears Bill White talk about complex adaptive systems, which is, of course, one of his pet peeves when it comes to, um, I wouldn't say pet peeves, but it's one of his, um, you know, terms that he likes to talk about um, when it comes to trend following. All right, sir, let's uh, round it off uh, with, um, you said you, you, you put in your notes here a little bit of uh, unforeseen consequences of QE. Yeah, sorry. I mean, that that's obviously linked to one of the... Um, very famous pieces Bill wrote was a piece 10 years ago called the Ultra Easy Monetary Policy and the Unintended Consequences. So, um, you know, that that's anybody who wants to read anything from Bill White, uh, get a sense of um, what he's written. That's one of the things. But, but it's interesting now as we look at markets, what we're starting to see is very much that. So obviously we, we've had Recently, the blow up in, um, well, blow up, I mean, extreme volatility in, in gilts and in tips markets in the UK. Um, and these this, these are the features of complex adaptive systems that you hit at various points in times, um, tipping points and thresholds where the market goes, can go parabolic or, you know, you've got, you know, um, basically participants are short gamma for, to use the options terminology and, and, and start uh, pushing the market and, and reinforcing the trend. So just interesting that we're seeing that. Also, you know, interesting that we're seeing in the last while central bankers having to respond to that to a much greater extent. We had the Bank of Japan interviewing, intervening in dollar yen last Friday. We had local Chinese banks reported to be selling dollar renminbi during the week, which people took as indicative of possible PBOC intervention. Uh, we had Janet Yellen out this week talking about concerns about liquidity in the treasury market because we've been seeing much larger larger moves there and much larger bid offer spreads. Uh, a JP Morgan index of market liquidity is down at its lowest levels for a number of years. So I think we're very much seeing playing out now as central banks withdraw the stimulus, some of these unforeseen consequences of uh, QE that that Bill White uh, wrote around uh, 10 years ago. Maybe Janet Yellen was listening to last week's episode with Jem because we talked exactly about some of the things, some of the risks that he's seeing in the option markets and really a, dr a drought of liquidity, uh, which usually is not a good sign. I will say, and, and we obviously um, have mentioned this before, that generally speaking, 
futures markets uh, are the most liquid markets going through these type of crises. Um, and so let's hope that that's uh, also the case this time around. But some of these quote-unquote liquid markets can become um, quite illiquid, um, which of course is also why I've been somewhat cautious about embracing the idea of alternative markets in trend-following strategies. I think actually being on exchange, trading liquid futures is, um, for the long run, uh, a safer bet, but that is another discussion. And then I think we're going to round it up there. I think we've been uh, we've done well covering some different uh, themes. Uh, any last uh, parting Halloween words from you? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's no. I think I think very interesting. Uh, always great to catch up. So um, no, happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, I think in exchange of Alan doing all this uh, research, finding these articles, maybe we could ask that you leave a rating and review in iTunes and Spotify, Amazon, because it really does help uh, the podcast reach more people. Uh, so we would be ever so grateful for that Halloween uh, gift. Um, Next week, I'm joined by Rob, so that will be uh, that could be another scary conversation. Frankly, he always <laughs> has some good topics uh, as well. Uh, and of course, if you have questions for Rob, you can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com, and I'll do uh, my best uh, to uh, make sure that they get an answer from um, our UK friend. From Alan and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.